0: Matthew twenty-two-two was just on the screen. Jesus was asked, what's the kingdom of heaven like? And he says, oh, it's like, it's like a wedding feast, but a wedding feast that was thrown by a king for his own son. Have you ever been to a Jewish wedding? I've been to one, and it was like the best wedding I've ever been to. And I say that having attended the weddings of two of my own children in the last 13 months. And don't get me wrong, they were both beautiful and lovely and simple, and um, nobody had to get a second mortgage uh, at all. But as lovely as they were, they were no Jewish weddings. So several years ago, my first cousin married a Jewish girl. And so, Leading up to that, he uh, very intentionally went through this time of um, learning about and embracing, in a formal way, the the Jewish faith. And uh, then uh, they had this Jewish wedding. And the the ceremony itself was, it was just, it was lovely. It was beautiful. And it was filled with all kinds of, just really uh, captivating um, symbolism and liturgy. And it was, it was just, it was lovely. But the, the, the reception, like the dinner, the banquet after, man, that was a party. Uh, the venue itself was really spectacular. But the, but the eating and the dancing and the laughing and the fun and the celebration was like nothing I'd ever experienced before or quite frankly, since. And course after course after course of this really delicious and amazing food. This, it was a party. For that one, I'm thinking people emptied their banks or took second mortgages. It was, it was really something. And so Jesus was asked the question, well, what's the kingdom of heaven like? And he said, oh, it's like a Jewish wedding feast, except one that's thrown by a king for his own son. You know, as I think about that, it causes me to wonder if we, and when I say we, I mean like we, the, the, the evangelical church in uh, Ontario, if we have forgotten how to celebrate. I wonder if we have forgotten how to party if the kingdom of heaven is a party like a jewish wedding feast thrown by a king and if jesus came on the scene announcing that the kingdom is here the kingdom is among you the kingdom is at hand and and, and he taught he taught people to pray thy kingdom come and jesus you know invites all of us to live the kingdom life now, like a, uh, like a dress rehearsal for when he comes back. If that's the case, then I think we need to give um, some serious thought to how we celebrate and to maybe making that a more intentional part of our experience together, learning to celebrate, learning to party. Well, we're in this series called Reset. This is uh, week number five of six. And uh, we're taking a slow walk through Acts chapter two, verses 42 to 47. And we're noticing there six things that this early church in Jerusalem devoted themselves to. And we're asking ourselves the question, what would it look like in this season for us to press reset and to devote ourselves to recapturing the spirit of the Acts 2 church, a church that was devoted to taking the words of Jesus seriously, a church that was devoted to Jesus-centered fellowship, a church that was devoted to prayer, to being a praying church, believing that prayer changes things, a church that was, we looked at last week, devoted to radical generosity and meeting needs in Jesus' name, And today we want to notice that this is a church devoted to worship. And we want to notice that their worship is just joyful and full of gladness and celebratory. Well, I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Again, hopefully by now these verses are, are becoming a little bit more familiar. But as I read through these verses and you follow along, listen for or watch for words that I think are pertinent to worship. And I'll kind of highlight them as I I read. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Notice that phrase, glad and sincere hearts, praising God and then enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Just before we keep going, would you just pray with me? Holy Spirit, I pray that right now you would would help us. We pray that you would be our teacher. Would you help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, minds that are open, hands that are open to receive what it is that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. And so... When I first started to study this little section of scripture, one of the things that jumped out at me in kind of a reactionary way is verse 46, where I read that this early church met daily in the temple courts. And one of my first reactions was, why? Why would you do that? What is the matter with you people? Why would you go to the temple every day? Don't you remember that Jesus was given a pretty rough ride at the temple? Don't you remember that It was the the Jewish religious leaders, the, the, the religious professionals associated with that temple who were the ones that cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus. Why are you going there? And I'm wondering if maybe they remembered something that I forgot in my reaction. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus is speaking and he's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah chapter 56. And Jesus says, my father's house is to be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. And so maybe these early believers, these early Jesus followers in Jerusalem, maybe they remembered those words of Jesus and remembered that the temple was important to Jesus and that Jesus wanted it to be a house of prayer. And so maybe these Um, Jewish Jesus followers went to the temple every day at nine o'clock or at three o'clock, which were the times formally set aside for daily prayer. So maybe they did that. They went every day either at nine or three for for corporate daily prayer. And then maybe from there, they went um, more informally into uh, people's homes for worship and to drill down on the words of Jesus and to share and to meet needs and the fellowship and so on. Last Sunday we talked about the fact that this early church in Jerusalem uh, practiced radical generosity. We read that they sold possessions, they pooled resources, they shared with anyone who had need, and we ask ourselves the question: Is is that prescriptive for us, or was that merely descriptive of them? And I think we came to the conclusion. I think, at least I did, that. What was prescriptive for us was the attitude, was the devotion to an attitude of heart and mind of radical generosity, of saying that all that I am and all that I have and all that I'll ever be is all because of God and it all belongs to God. And God is the owner and I'm the manager and the possessions that I'm holding on to I'm not claiming them as my own, rather I'm seeing these possessions simply as vehicles to be used in the meeting of needs of other people. And so I think the takeaway for us was the attitude of heart and mind, the the devotion to radical generosity, the way that they practiced that in their first century Jewish context was descriptive of them, but the attitude is prescriptive for us. Generosity is not first and foremost about finances. It's first and foremost an attitude of heart and mind. And similarly, we could look at the worship practices of this early church in Jerusalem. We we could ask that same question. Prescriptive or descriptive is what they did prescriptive for us. Should we be getting together every day at nine o'clock or three o'clock for corporate prayer and then going into... Uh, homes, um, and so on. And I think the way that they practiced their worship was descriptive of them. And what's prescriptive for us, again, is the attitude, is the heart. And we see that, that heart, that attitude described in verses 46 and 47, glad and sincere hearts praising God. And so just like generosity is first and foremost an attitude of heart and mind and not just about finances. So too, worship begins with a posture of heart. Worship is not first and foremost about um, when we meet or where we meet or how often we meet or at uh, what hours we meet, whether it's formal or informal. Worship is first and foremost about a joyful and glad uh, celebratory Heart, a heart that looks like the kingdom that Jesus said looks like a Jewish wedding feast. Worship is not first and foremost about online uh, services like the one that we're sharing together right now. Worship is not first and foremost about in person. Uh, worship services, worship is not first and foremost about music, it's not first and foremost about programs, it's not first and foremost about particular days of the week or particular times of those particular days. Worship begins with a posture of heart, an attitude of heart that is filled with gladness, filled with praise to God. Worship is primarily not about a time and a place, it's primarily about our heart. One of the things that I think COVID has helped us to see, at least helped me help pastors for sure to see, uh, particularly during periods of lockdown when we couldn't use our buildings. I think it helped us to see how reliant churches have been on their buildings. How even, I might even use the word, how addicted churches have been uh, to their buildings and how obsessed churches are, pastors are with crowd size, and so in uh, lockdown mode, many, many churches have had like this crisis, this meltdown, this um, crisis of identity. You know, who, who are we when we can't use our building? And, and how can we feel good about ourselves if we can't make a crowd? You know, uh, here's a little, a little um, secret for you uh, that I, I will tell you as an insider, as a pastor, and I'm kind of writing out uh, my brother and sister uh, pastors when I say this, but pastors are notorious for being obsessed with attendance figures, counting butts in chairs. That number is a number that pastors obsess about. And many will talk a good story and say, well, we're obsessed about those numbers because every number, uh, that means a person and every person has a story and so on, and that's absolutely true. But man, oh man, there's a lot of cases where we're just obsessed about that number um, and not always thinking about the people who represent those numbers. A lot of, and I say this, and I'm not excluding myself from this, but a lot of what pastors do in that regard is really kind of driven by ego. And... um, you know it's interesting when when there were lockdowns and and the uh, you know churches couldn't use their buildings and pastors couldn't obsess over in person attendance figures well all of a sudden there became this new obsession about how do you count online attendance and pastors were having these almost humorous debates looking at, well, look at YouTube and and what's a view? How many people is a view? Because you might have five people watching and that counts as one view. Maybe there's 30 people sitting on a back deck and that counts as one view. And there was all this debate about this and so many pastors ended up creating this rather, I would say, generous formula uh, for determining what an online view actually is. And you know, during, particularly during lockdown times in the last uh, 19 months or so, I would drive around, and maybe you experience this too, you drive around and you see churches and you look at their signs, and you see signs like uh, church closed, or uh, church is canceled until further notice, or church service uh, canceled because of COVID-19. And I would just kind of sigh every time I saw a sign like that because that messaging is so off. And here's why. Because the church is not a building. Church is people. Church isn't something that can be closed. Church isn't something that can be canceled. Church isn't something we attend. It's something we are. And nowhere, if you read through the New Testament, nowhere do you find the church called to make a crowd. We are, however, called to make disciples. In fact, for the first uh, 300 years of church history, making a crowd was not part of the church's agenda. It wasn't until the 4th century and the Emperor Constantine who was a, a pretty smart guy, and he was noticing that there were more and more an increasing number of Jesus followers in the Roman Empire, and having had uh, reportedly some kind of a vision uh, of Jesus, he came to, to this conclusion saying, you know, we've got, uh, we've got all these temples to house the gods and the goddesses. Let's also build cathedrals to house the God Jesus. And so for the first time in history, church became something that you go to. You went to church. You went to a building to go to church. And really, you know, if we're honest, that was a very paganized version of Christianity. And I don't think any of us readily want to admit that our buildings today that we still call church, and we still say we're going to church, and we refer to these buildings as church, that that really was birthed out of a very paganized view of, of, of Christianity. And so under Constantine, uh, churches, you know, for the first time became religious. Churches for the first time became a, like a spectator sport. For the first time, church became a product to be consumed in large buildings, seated in rows, looking at the back of the person's head in front of you. But what did Jesus say? In Matthew 28, we've talked about this before, the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? Go into all the world and make a crowd. No, he didn't say that. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. Now, our online worship services... Um this online worship service that we're sharing in right now this is not the mission. Our in-person worship gatherings here in our church building is not the mission. Making disciples is the mission. Our online church services, our in-person worship gatherings, that's a method, not the mission. Methods support the mission. Methods come and go. Methods change. The mission stays the same. And so crowd size really means absolutely nothing as to whether or not we're actually accomplishing the mission of making disciples. You track with Jesus through the gospels, you'll find that Jesus was not into crowd making. He was, however, into disciple making. And you know, during During periods of lockdown, like when I was um, pastoring our daughter church in Kincardine, I would hear people say, oh, I miss having a service. And I I was sympathetic to that and I understood where they were coming from. And I missed it too. I missed being able to gather together. But, you know, honestly, um, at a church service, there's actually very little service going on. It's mostly consuming, not serving. I'm not sure why we call them a church service when it's not a lot of serving. And I would say, and this is my opinion, and this is based on my experience uh, pre-COVID, which was not with Stabel Church, but my experience was that our in-person services were proving rather ineffective at disciple-making. We made crowds, but were we making disciples? And so online services like this, this is a method. In-person gatherings in a building on Sundays is a method. Neither of those are the mission. Methods must serve the mission. Our devotion must be to the mission, not to the methods. And sometimes if we're honest, we get pretty devoted to the methods, sometimes even more so than to the mission. I think it was Andy Stanley who says, date the method, marry the mission. And you know, COVID has forced us to have some really good conversations. It's, it's kind of brought us to a point where we've had to ask some tough questions and, and some of them we're attempting to ask in this series. Questions like, what would it mean for us in this season? to press reset, and to recapture the spirit of the Acts 2 church. And so today we're talking about worship. We're talking about the really the heart of worship. The heart of worship is not about a building. The heart of worship is not about methods. The heart of worship is not about crowd size. It's not about traditional versus contemporary. It's not about gaither versus hillsong. It's not about... Um, You know, guitars and drums versus piano and organ. Worship begins with a posture of heart. The heart of worship. And I love that song, by the way. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And I... I would guess that many of us, if not all of us, would admit that there have been times where we have made worship about us, where it's been about our preferences, what makes us happy, what makes us feel good, what puts a smile on our face. When worship is all about God and what pleases Him, what puts a smile on His face, right? I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, when it's all about you, Jesus. And so there was present in this early church in Jerusalem, this sense of awe. We saw that in chapter two, verse 43, the sense of awe, they would look at Jesus and, and all that Jesus had done for them and they'd be filled with awe. They looked at what God was doing and what God was doing for the apostles and they were filled with awe. And this sense of awe just filled their hearts with this gladness, this celebration, this joy, this enthusiasm. And you know what? They had good reason to be full of joy because the gospel is good news. They'd been set free by the truth of Jesus. They'd been redeemed by the grace of Jesus. Once they were not a people, but now they're the people of God. Once they were in darkness, now they're in light. Once they had not known mercy, now they've known mercy. And so the gospel is good news and they were joyful and glad and thankful and celebratory about that. Not only that, but in Acts chapter two, we know that God pours out his spirit and they were filled with the spirit and the fruit of the spirit is joy. Now, I've been in a lot of Christian gatherings. Maybe you have too. I've been in a lot of Christian gatherings, small and large. And in some of them, you would swear that the gospel is bad news. Like so boring and so dull. And you look around you at people who just look like they're in pain, having to endure this, this, like bizarro. Uh, But here's the thing, here's what I want us to point out. In this early church in Jerusalem, verse 43, they were filled with awe. There's this sense of awe because they knew that Jesus was with them. And that filled them with gladness and thankfulness and joy and celebration. And so what I want us to see today really is this heart of worship. And I want us, just in the final moments of our time together today, I want us to kind of see it in action. But I don't want to talk about the the heart of worship in action in our own context, because I don't want us to get hung up with with, um, form and function and methods and I don't even want to talk about the heart of worship in the New Testament because we'll, we'll again get into this prescriptive, descriptive uh, thing, which is good, but I don't want to do that right now. So what we're going to do is we're going to go way back to Chronicles. So if you've got a Bible, you can flip to um, uh, go to 2 Chronicles. We're, we're going to end up in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, but um, I want to go back there because God has always had a worshiping people. But we know that the form and the function that we're going to see in Chronicles is nothing that we're going to mimic in any way. So just uh, we can just focus on the expression of the heart of worship. I just said 2 Chronicles 5, that's where we want to end up. But I'll tell you what, go back a little bit further to 1 Chronicles chapter 23, and I'll go back there too. 1 Chronicles chapter 23, and I'm just going to read the first five verses here. Um, We want to get to 2 Chronicles 5, but but starting here will help us get some context in mind. Verse 1, when David was old and full of years, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. He also gathered together all the leaders of Israel, as well as the priests and Levites. The Levites, 30 years old or more, were counted, and the total number of men was 38,000. David said of these, of these 38,000, 24,000 are to supervise the work of the temple of the Lord and 6,000 are to be officials and judges. And then look at this, Uh, 4,000 are to be gatekeepers and 4,000 are to praise the Lord with the musical instruments I have provided for that purpose. That's a big band, 4,000 people uh, with instruments so they can make a joyful noise to the Lord. And then if you just kind of, um, work your way through these next chapters, like chapter 24. I'm just going to read like the chapter headings here is about the division of priests. Uh, chapter 25 is all about the vocalists, all about the singers. The whole chapter is you get to chapter 26. It's about uh, gatekeepers, treasures, and, and others. Chapter 27 is kind of a military thing. It's armies and how the army is uh, divided and put into groups then you get to chapter 28 and it gets a little more detailed. These are David's uh, very specific plans for the temple. And then you get to chapter 29. And chapter 29 is really uh, quite significant because here you see the bringing together of all of the gifts for the temple. And uh, for instance, go to verse two, chapter 29, verse two. Let me just read uh, two or three verses here. This is David. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God, gold, gold, for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stones and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold, gold of ophir and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. And so there you've got the leader talking about what he's releasing from the national treasury for this pro- project. And then what he's, what he's dipping into his own funds, his own retirement funds to contribute to this project. And then he asks a very, very significant question at the end of verse five. Notice, notice this question. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Who is willing? Who? is willing to consecrate himself or herself to the Lord. This idea of consecration is is a giving over. It's a a voluntary giving over of all that I am and all that I have and all that I'll ever be. Who is willing to give himself or herself to the Lord? Notice that consecration is to the Lord. It's not to the temple, it's not to a building. Buildings are just temporary. They're just a means to an end. Consecration is to the Lord. And then uh, turn over the page and you should get to 2 Chronicles. And um, in chapter one, you've got Solomon asking for wisdom. Chapter two, preparations for building the temple. Then you get to to, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter three, there's construction uh, taking place. You get to chapter four, and you get this very detailed description of all of the furnishings that are gonna be um, part of uh, the the interior of the temple. And it's quite detailed and interesting to read. But then you get to chapter five. And chapter five is like the grand opening. It's like ribbon cutting. This is where, um, where it all uh, is culminating. And it must have been an incredible moment. This had to have been a very incredible day. Look at chapter five. Uh, 5 and verse 1, when all the work Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and all the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of God's temple. This is a huge moment. All of these things that have been so meticulously and and, uh, carefully constructed out of the most precious materials is brought into this completed uh, temple structure. And then um, look at verse 2. Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Zion, the city of David. So now they're going to bring in the Ark of the Covenant into the building, this visible uh, representation of the presence of God. This is a huge, huge moment. Well, in closing, I want to give you three words, uh, three words that kind of, I think, um, capture this heart of worship that we've been talking about. There are three shun words, not shun is in S-H-U-N, but shun is in T-I-O-N. So three shun words. And the first is consecration. We've already mentioned that word uh, today. We talked about it when we were in First Chronicles 29.5 and that question that David asked, who among you is willing to consecrate to give over, to voluntarily yield all that you are and have and ever will be. Who among you is willing to to consecrate yourself to the Lord? But if you're, if you look at verse 11, so 2 Chronicles 5 and 11, look what it says: the priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves. There's that word again. And so here's these priests engaged in this incredible. Um, moment in the life of the nation, in the, in, uh, in the temple. But they had consecrated themselves before this incredible moment of corporate worship ever began. And how they consecrated themselves is really not of, uh, you know, it's, it's really not of interest to what we're talking about today. They had very specific ways that they consecrated themselves. What I want us to notice is is just the thing of consecration. They consecrated themselves. They gave themselves to the Lord first. And, um, you know, if, if you're familiar with the New Testament, that might cause you to think about Romans chapter uh, 12 and verse one, which says, and this is really, this is really about consecration for Jesus followers. Paul says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is consecration. This is a giving over of all that I am, all that I have, all that I'll ever be to God. My, my body, my soul, my spirit, my possessions, my emotions, my, my treasure, uh, my bank accounts, giving it all over to God as an act of worship. So genuine worship is grounded in this self-giving consecration to the Lord. The second shun word is celebration. We've already used this word again. Um, and again, here in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, This you know, there's this beautiful picture of this, uh, this worship experience in the temple. I would have loved to have been there. I would love to have seen this and heard this uh, for myself. But look at verse... Uh, well, go back to verse 12. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Haman, jeduthun and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linen. Love to see this, these, this fine linen clothing. What are they doing? They're playing cymbals and harps and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. That's a big trumpet section. The trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, they raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, he is good and his love endures forever. That had to be an incredible moment of worship. Nobody's bored. Nobody's looking out the window. Nobody's jingling loose change in their pockets. This is celebration and that had to be incredible and it's not just it's not just like a subjective worship experience but it, there was a there was a very intentional and volitional embracing of theology and embracing the the truth of the goodness of God and the enduring nature of the love of God and so this is a worship experience that engages them um, intellectually, there's truth to embrace. It embraces them volitionally. There's a choice to surrender ourselves to this God who is good and who loves us. And, and there's, um, there's an opportunity for, for an emotional response to, to declare our love and to feel God's love in return. I think good worship uh, gives us a feeling to feel, you know, a thought to think about, and a choice to make. Um And here we see that happening. R.C. Sproul uh, once said, "'If our knowledge of God is superficial, "'our worship of God will be superficial.'" Well, let me give you uh, the last shun word, and it's revelation, not as in the last book of the New Testament, but revelation as in uh, being revealed. And I want you to notice uh, the end of verse uh, 13. The trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by the trumpet cymbals and other instruments. They raised their voice in praise to the Lord and saying he is good as love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Wow. What would it be like to be in a worship gathering, whether small or large, where you just, you had no choice but to just stop because the presence of Jesus was just so close, palpable and overwhelming. The glory of his presence just caused the thing to stop. Well, there is a kind of a New Testament equivalent of that. In fact, the Apostle Paul praised that kind of thing would happen in Jesus following churches. And we'll close with this. This will be kind of our benediction of sorts. It's Paul's prayer for the church in Corinth. And and we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and, and verse 25. And really what Paul is talking about here to this church in Corinth, he's saying, uh, I want your worship experience to be such that when somebody who does not know Jesus comes into your midst, and let me read exactly what uh, Paul says so I don't misquote it. So this, this person who doesn't know Jesus would come into their midst, into the midst of their worship experience, so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. And let's let that be our prayer today as we close, that this week that we would live in such a way that the people around us and even people who don't know Jesus would look at us and see the evidence of consecration, that they would sense our joy in celebration, and that they would experience the revelation of Jesus who is in us. Well, God bless you. Go out and worship joyfully this week. See you next time.